Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. We speak with Queen's Counsel, trial lawyers and judges from around the world about how they excel in the courtroom. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for additional resources at theadvocacypodcast.com. I'm your host, Bibi Badejo. Today's guest is trial attorney Roger Dodd. He's a board certified specialist in both criminal and civil litigation. He has also been described as the foremost expert in cross-examination in the world and is the co-author of Cross-Examination, The Science and Techniques. In this episode, Roger shares his top 10 tips on cross-examination that you can put into practice immediately. Hello, Roger. Good morning. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. So, Roger, can you tell us a bit about yourself, please? Sure. I've uh, been trying cases 45 years. Uh, try any kind of case, criminal, civil, court martials, the occasional divorce. Uh, I don't like to do those anymore, but that's where I started was court-appointed cases and, and domestic cases. Did those for about 26 years. And then one day looked up and said, there has to be an either easier way. Um, and still trying cases, still like trying cases. Teach a lot now, but uh, still like trying cases. Can we just dial it back a bit? Roger, what were you like when you first started trying cases as an advocate? Yeah, two things have changed. Uh, times have changed and I've changed uh, even more. When I look back, when I first started, it was all energy. It was all aggression. It was all too loud. It was all too fast. And juries and judges slow you down. Uh, You look at their faces and they look like they just stuck their finger in an electrical outlet. You might be going too fast, too hard, too aggressive. Um, Now, it's just the opposite. Uh, People always remark, you know, for a big guy, you're really soft-spoken. For a big guy, you're really kind to people. <laughs> and uh, no one ever said that to me the first 15 years. <laughs> so in the first 15 years, what sort of, do I want to call it mistakes? I don't know. What kind of mistakes were you making as a trial lawyer that you learned do not work for you and don't help your client? It's all an evolution, isn't it? I mean, you keep refining everything you do. And as time went on, I realized that listening was much more important than talking as a trial lawyer. And I had bought into, oh, you're a lawyer, you get paid to talk kind of mentality. And now when someone says that to me, I I go, no, no, I'm really paid to listen and to think. Talking is not a real high priority for me now. And I think when I was younger, I truly believed I was getting paid to talk, and I talked a lot. Juries don't need that. Judges don't want it. They want you to be more thoughtful. And so I try to do that now, as opposed to when I first started. While you were in the beginning of your career, or even even throughout, actually, were there skills that you saw other trial lawyers that they possessed that you thought, oh, okay, that's great. I want to emulate that. I was really in a, 
a kind of a, a great situation at the very beginning of my career. I was in a smaller town, only 40,000 people when I first started. Still a small town, 120,000. But um, I got to see all the trial lawyers every day because there was, weren't many of us. And I was the youngest by far, by, by 15, 20 years, who really just said, I'm only trying cases. I'm not doing everything else. That was an unusual position to take 45 years ago. Most small town lawyers did everything. And I quickly realized I had no aptitude to search a title or to write a will. Uh, I realized I couldn't write a will because I didn't even write my own will. And so I was just a trial lawyer. So I was in court constantly and I got to see all these great trial lawyers, many of them unheralded. Uh, many of them not thought to be great trial lawyers, but they had great skills. And uh, then I figured out there was four or five that I really wanted to be like. Very, very different people, but I wanted to be like them for different reasons. Then they kind of took me under their wing. There wasn't a mentorship program back then. It was all hard love. I mean, they'd make you buy them drinks and blow cigar smoke in your face. That was a mentoring session. But they were so kind to me in terms of, uh, you know, they'd say, boy, take us out for a drink, you know. <laughs> and I'd go, okay, yes, sir. And I'd take them out for a drink, and they'd blow smoke in my face, and it always starts conversation the same way. You really are not very good at trial work, but at least you're trying. And then they'd tell war stories about it. It was not organized instruction. It was just, well, don't do this. You might want to think about doing that. And the closer we got, the more often we went out. And my learning curve really, really started going vertical uh, because I was, I was with those guys all the time, socially, professionally. I was like their, the young pup who was willing to take whatever abuse they wanted to hand out as long as they were teaching me. So it was a great situation for me, and, and I thrive on tough love. I don't do that anymore. I, I know there's a better way to do it now, but back then I thought they loved me because they treated me so badly. And through that mentorship or informal mentorship and your experience in trials, what do you say is your unique skill? that you have as a trial lawyer? I don't think I have any unique skills. If anything, I think I work harder than most people. And that was one of the things I learned from those guys. One in particular was considered to be the dean of the trial lawyers in South Georgia. He worked harder than anybody. I'd leave my office and have to drive home past his office. His light was still on. I drive into the office at six o'clock in the morning. His light was already on. And I realized he's out working me and I have to learn to work harder. So that's, that's, if that's a skill, then working hard, I do that. The other thing that I have developed is I listen better. Uh, the older I get, more experienced I get, the more I realize that listening in cross is more important than talking in cross. I also think that you're being particularly modest 
because from my experience of you, one of the, the most unique things that I think about you is the, your ability to deconstruct questions and you have an understanding of why a particular question works, the order of the words, i.e. does the verb go first or should it be the noun and, and so on. And also picking up on your opponents like, oh, they're getting frustrated. That's why they phrase it in this way. And so on. And just being able to have that skill of deconstructing, I found, as you've taught me before, it has been re- incredibly effective and impactful for me. So even though you won't say it, I'll say it. I think that's definitely <laughs> a skill that you possess. Well, I do believe in getting down into details. It doesn't help anybody to say, ask at a different way. You have to tell them how to ask it. And then you have to answer the question, why are you doing that that way? Trial lawyers are stubborn animals. I mean, we just are. We're slow to change. It is tough for us to shift gears. And yet, you know, in the courtroom, we're supposed to look spontaneous all the time. I find that I'm really, really down in the details. I'm at my best in the courtroom. I've taken two of your clinics before, and I really improved beyond what I thought I could. So what I was wondering really was, why did you want to share your knowledge? Because you've written a fantastic book, which I refer to all the time. And also you teach groups of eight in your trial clinic. So why did you want to share that with other people? So really three reasons. The people that taught me, impressed upon me, I had to pass it forward. The second reason, one of my dear friends, uh, Bill Shepard, who is actually older than me, still practicing law, still getting verdicts, uh, took me to lunch and said, you have an obligation to teach. It's not something that you can choose. You have to teach. You're good at it. And so you have to do it. And then the third is completely selfish. I get better every time I teach somebody. They always ask me questions or they make me think about how it is I do what I do. And then I have to figure out why is that working? And so you call it deconstructing. So then that's the process. Uh, And every time I write, every time I teach, I get better at that. And that means my clients are better served. The cool thing about the trial practice you can do it for so long, as long as you keep refining what you're doing. Things keep changing. You know, the pandemic with Zoom, it's changed everything with Cross now. And so three, four months ago, after complaining bitterly that I couldn't go try a case, I started just a crash course on Zoom, on how to cross on Zoom. I taught, I, I critiqued. I did depositions, I did hearings, and we started cataloging all the things that would work from our old repertoire and an even longer list of things that wouldn't work anymore. And so the process begins again, doesn't it? So now, as you know, having been to the clinic, we not only teach cross, but we teach cross on Zoom. 
so that people can learn how to use this camera as their live audience. And that's a big change. Really excited about that. And so every time I teach, I get a little better. And I hope a client is helped by that. And let's talk a bit more about the trial clinics that you have. Um, I mentioned before that you have a group of eight. Um, why is it limited to eight people? Well, there is two considerations. The first was how many people can we teach effectively in under eight hours? Because we found that six to eight hours, everybody's burned out at the end of the day and their minds aren't working really well. But that should feel like a trial. That's why we, we run it the whole day. Uh, people keep asking me, can't we just do it in four-hour segments? That's not trial. Can't do it. You got to learn how to do this when you're fatigued. So that was the first consideration. The second consideration was how many people can learn from each other conveniently during the day. And as you know, the participants learn from each other more than they learn from the instructors, I think, most days. More from the, the professional improv actors than the instructors. Everybody has a different way of saying how to improve. And so that was a huge factor. If you put 10, 12 in, and we tried that originally, it was just too much information. If you get down below four, it's too little information. You're on your feet so much, there's no time for introspection. There's no time to recharge. We actually uh, taught in, in a clinic form a Canadian QC who was going to have his last trial. It was a big trial, and he wanted to kill it. And I tried to talk him out of that, going just one again. <laughs> Just one lawyer, he was on his feet for two, three days constantly, and yet he kept improving, and he did kill that trial, and he went on to a very, very nice career now as a mediator and, I think, arbitrator, and they've asked him to take the bench, and he's a brilliant guy, but I don't think most people could do that. I don't think I could have done that. So we ended up with eight, seems to work the best. Uh, we've done it with as little as six, but I, I really prefer not to do that. And I refuse to do it over eight. I just don't have enough time with each participant. You're giving me your time. I need to really be focused on you for the entire clinic. Well, that leads me to my next question, which is the types of trial lawyers that come to your clinics. You've mentioned a QC from Canada, which surprised me when I heard about that because you think, okay, they're a QC, they don't need to learn anything else. So can you tell us a bit more about the sorts of trial lawyers that attend your clinics? For 30 years, more than 30 years, I've taught at other institutes and some of them had groups of 10, groups of 12, and they always had them by age group or experience group. And I always thought mixing them up with every different kind of age group, every different kind of experience, different backgrounds made a lot more sense. There was a lot more cross-pollinization. And in those institutes, it was always younger lawyers, uh, less experienced lawyers. And so when we started this, then I quit all those things because I I felt like the administrators were running it. 
trial lawyers weren't running it. They weren't doing it very well. Then actually the QC from Canada uh, attended one of my all-day lectures, approached me. I mean, he tracked me down at the airport. After I give a lecture, the first thing I do is go to the airport, go to the next thing. And he followed me to the airport and came up and, and said, uh, you know, I want you to teach me one-on-one. And we sat down and had a glass of wine. I said, you're too talented. You have too much experience. You, you know, you got all this, this experience. And he said, no, no, you don't understand. I want to get better. And he was older than me. And, and I thought to myself, I think I'm serious. This guy's serious. And so we did that as a project, and I had great trepidation on it. But he improved so much in three days. I mean, we actually broke it into three days because I thought he was going to be exhausted. And he didn't want anybody else to attend. And I explained to him the cross-pollinization. I think it was embarrassment. He didn't want anybody else to see him fail because he was used to you know, looking brilliant. And he was brilliant. At the end of those three days and all the improvement he made, I realized this is more for more experienced lawyers than it is for young lawyers. With that said, when someone doesn't have a lot of experience, they improve the most. It's a geometric improvement. The least experienced person is one who, who progresses the furthest. They don't have as many bad habits. They're more open. And they get this momentum the second day where they realize, I can do this. This isn't a dream. I, I'm capable. And then when they come back for a second one or a third one, man, it, it is so eye-opening to watch them fly. It's very exciting for the entire team. I don't teach it alone to watch that. And then in the faculty meetings that we have at the end of the day, we then figure out specific things to challenge them for the second day. You know, we have somebody cry and, and, you know, that's tough. If you've never had a crying witness, that's, that's a tough chore. And if you progress really, really far, then we make sure that we challenge you harder. So very exciting. Uh, I just had a clinic in the last two months where the average experience level was 22 years and that was the average i mean we had two guys in there one i think had tried cases 38 years and the other one 46 years he, he had started practicing before i had and he was with it the whole time i mean he was totally in it so can't wait to see him get back in the courtroom and he had gotten to the point in his career where he wasn't challenged very much He's going to be a different lawyer now. He's energized. He's emailed me like a half a dozen times. So that's exciting. That's great to hear. From my experience, because I've been on a number of advocacy courses myself, it is my passion. I've been to Florida and Australia and, of course, done yours. What I noticed was so different was that the exercises were super short. They're about three pages long. There were a limited number, say 12, whereas I've had the experience of having 200 pages, 450 pages and having to figure out the case analysis and the strategies that I'm going to use. 
And I'd always felt that because I've had to spend time on getting to grips with the facts of these massive cases, I've lost a bit of time on technique. Why did you do it in that way, which seemed to be so different from the way other institutions are doing it? I agree with you. Most institutes, big problems, you know, like big is better. Um, you want lawyers who are trying cases to come. You want lawyers who are very active in their practice. There's no time to read all that. And so what you get is people who have skimmed it or scanned it. That was always a problem in the past. And, and I always said, if I ever set one up, because I was asked to do that a lot, I would make the problem short. And they're not even problems, they're just exercises. Um, and so what I learned quickly before the first one, and we only had four problems for the QC because I couldn't write anymore. And I'm sure he was out of his mind, you know, reading these short little problems and trying to get into the details of it. Writing short is much harder than writing long. You can fluff up 10 pages if the problem is four pages, man, it is jam-packed full of facts, and there are intentional omissions of facts, and there's contradictions, intentional, but they're subtle. It requires you to really focus into the details so much, that's part of the process, so that when you go back to your office, you're locked into the detail again, and the nuance, and the, and the change in tone. We're working now on a problem exercise that is all audio because that's the world we live in mostly is audio. So there'll be no typed out problem. You listen to it. You then have to figure out the tone. What does that tone mean? And that's a real challenge. Uh, that's a real challenge. So we're not there yet on that one, uh, but we're getting there. Um, and I want to see if I can get four or five before we turn it over to, to a group of eight. But that's the world we live in. We have to be realistic with it. We, we have to be honest with ourselves and say, easier to cross off of a document than it is to listen to the tone. And in the Zoom world, it's really, you know, video from chest up. The rest of it's all tone. And you just mentioning that you've got exercises based on audio only I actually sent a shiver down my spine because I, <laughs> I have the option <laughs> of choosing it. And I got so scared because I just thought I can't think I can't think of any questions. So I didn't do that. So let me know how everyone else goes and then maybe maybe I'll take that up. But that's an incredible skill that you're teaching for people to develop, just like listening to tone and being able to pick up on those differences. Well, I, when I was in college, I had a classmate who ended up writing symphonies. And I didn't know he was going to do that. I guess he did. He always was big in that. But I took 101 music with him. And the professor would ask me about what I just heard. And it was general dribble. I didn't know what I was listening to. She'd ask this other guy what he heard. And he could go on for like 15 minutes, all on nuance. And I realized, but did not realize that it applied to trial work. I realized that he was listening with a different ear. We all going to have to listen with different ears now. 
because it's going to be more audio and less body language. It's going to be tone. It's going to be word selection. Uh, all that's going to get highlighted with Zoom. So we have to change. It's very, very difficult to get people to try those problems. And my teaching style is not to force anybody to do anything. I mean, they did that to me. It worked because of my personality. Uh, you know, I'd have a co-counsel turn to me and say, I can't do this cross. You got to do it. And then I'd be up on my feet doing it, never prepared as much as I wanted to be because I thought he was doing it. But that worked for me. I, I don't think it works for most people. So people will eventually realize the, the worth of the, the exercise. And when they do, they'll do them. But it's, it's a little scary. So we're now going to turn to the grand piece that I had set you before, which was to share your 10 tips for improving <laughs> your cross-examination. <laughs> so what's your first tip, Roger? Preparation is more important than presentation. That, that's a catchy little phrase, but it's really true. I see younger, less experienced lawyers relying on they're really good verbally or they're good looking or they move right. And they think that's the cat's meow. I want the guy who has prepared so diligently that he, he or she has all the facts and they know how to use the facts. That's the one I want. And that's what the clients deserve. In that same regard, can I go to number two? You can go to number two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In that same regard, uh, have a purpose for every factual chapter that you do on cross. I see lawyers thinking that they have a concept like, I am going to affect the credibility of the witness. That's a concept. That's not a fact. That's not prepared. That's not a real purpose. I need to understand what facts you're going to emphasize to the judge, to the jury, and that's going to influence them. That's preparation. And the purpose for each chapter, that's critical. That, to me, that's one of the most critical things. Can you just explain a bit more about a chapter? Because you created that, didn't you? Yeah, my co-author and I came up with that. But that was really built on another lawyer, Steve Wrench, who has now passed away, who said that it should be more of a story, and I don't mean a lie, but a story, a narrative, like a book has chapters. And that's how that happened. We, we were literally having dinner when he said that to us. And I think we all looked up and went, wow, that's important. You know, where's a pen? Somebody write that down before we forget it. So a chapter is a group of questions designed to make visual for the judge and jury one fact, just one fact. You may ask eight questions, 12 questions. I've seen them go as long as in the high teens. Never just one because one would be a conclusion. And we don't ask conclusions. We don't ask conclusions for two reasons. One, they're always denied. You know, you're a jerk, denied, right? But show all the reasons the witness is a jerk. And the judge and jury privately in their minds say, 
he's a jerk. That's what a chapter should look and feel like, okay? So we have a purpose for every one of those chapters. There are no throwaway lines in, in our system. I hear lawyers, particularly older lawyers, used to say, well, I didn't really care what the answer was to that question. Well, then that was a bad question. You have to care about every one of them, and it has to amount to a visual image at the end of that chapter that the jury judge is never going to question again. They have that image. They're done with that. So it's a very efficient system because you don't rehash old chapters. You move from one to the next to the next, and it goes much faster than it sounds like it would. And I'm sure you experience that in the clinic where in 15 minutes you can cover 30 chapters and you can't believe how much you covered in such a short period of time. Well, judges and juries both love that. They love the efficiency, and that's what we're aiming for. So the third important improvement area would be to follow the three rules. In the States, the first person who ever tried to really, in my lifetime, tried to really organize cross-examination was Irving Younger. And he had this famous set of VHS tapes, beta tapes too. That's how old it was. Of the Ten Commandments of Cross-Examination. Well, ten's too hard to remember in court. That's just too many things. Then I got to meet him later in my career. We were on the same program, and I told him how often I had watched him live and on the videotape. And I said, Professor Younger, I don't think there's 10. I think there's only seven. He said, actually, there's only six, but 10 sales. And I was devastated because I spent all this time trying to memorize these things. And I didn't say anything to him, but I thought to myself, I'm going to get it below six. And so first, we're going to lead every question. Every question is a leading question. There's no doubt that it's going to be a leading question. It doesn't start with a verb. It doesn't start with who, how, when, where, why. It is a command statement with a question mark at the end. That's the basic rule. Most lawyers do that pretty well. The more important rule is the second rule, and that is one new fact per question. Just one little detailed fact. That way the witness can't evade you. Witness, particularly experts evade between two facts in the same question and they only answer half of it or a part of it or none of it because it's jumbled so we we make it impossible for them to evade and the third rule is start generally down to specific that's the form of every chapter and so the content of every chapter is different but the form is always the same so if you're thrown into a hearing, into a trial, into a cross-examination, and didn't have any notes, mentally, you'd still be thinking general to the specific. And it truly becomes brainstem. It, I don't even think in terms of anything other than that now. I even do it socially. You know, if I go to the grocery store uh, and I start to question somebody about where the fruitcake is or whatever, I say, you have fruitcake? Yeah, all right. 
and you're going to direct me to the out, yeah, and where in the out, that, that's generally specific. Number four is huge and, and fairly recent. For years, I did what I then used to call a hard cross and a soft cross. And the soft cross was about my theory of the case, not about attacking the opponents. And then I realized it wasn't soft at all. It was really effective, and I was using the same tone. It was constructive cross. It was about my narrative, not about attacking the other guy's narrative. And once we realized that was a real thing and you could plan for that, we then realized destructive cross was a secondary to it. And most lawyers never get past that secondary stage, that destructive stage. If I can get the opponent or their witnesses to admit my narrative, I'm going to win that trial. And it's more effective than if my client would say it because they have no reason to want to say it. And so the judge jury immediately believes it because they're supporting my position. So constructive cross, and I say it's fairly new, been around a long time. I don't think anybody really thought in terms of let's build the whole cross constructively. And what's left over, we'll do destructive, but we don't have to do a lot of that anymore. And so now in a civil case, 70, 80% of my crosses are about constructive cross. Criminal cases, a little bit less than that, but still over 50% is constructive. And that's a big page turner for cross-examination. I have judges literally saying, and judges who've been on the bench for decades, I've never seen it done that way before. And that's a real sad commentary to me on our profession that we didn't figure that out earlier. Interestingly enough, it's been talked about historically in books on cross-examination as far back as the 1850s, and that book is called The Advocate and written by Edward W. Cox, published in England. We always thought Wellman was a great early book, and it is a great early book, 1908, but Cox was talking about this in different words, different language, in the 1850s. And I just found that volume this year. I had always been told that Wellman based his book on somebody else, never could track it down. And a dear friend who's become a very good friend, a Colombian lawyer, Alejandro, I think you know him. I do. Found the book for me. He is a great researcher in a second language. He's a better researcher than I am in my first language. Mr. Cox was talking, didn't call it constructive, but was talking about those concepts as early as 1850. So we're really working hard on that now. We're, we've really developed a great deal of information on why it works now, why juries accept it, why judges like it. No one agrees on what to call it, but we call it constructive cross. And uh, that's a big game changer for cross-examiners. Amazing. And well done, Alejandro, for finding that book for Roger. <laughs> that's so cool. He sends me stuff constantly. That is some well-read guy. 
excellent lawyer, as you know, you saw him, but in a second language, he's a very good lawyer. So I can only imagine how he is in Spanish. Absolutely. Okay, so what's next? All right, number five. We're going to talk about loops now, and that goes to word selection. So first, let's address word selection. When we're thinking about the purpose of each chapter, we're thinking about the words to describe it. And we're thinking about specific words that work better than other words. Oftentimes, verbs is the key to unlocking some of that. Most lawyers think in terms of adverbs and adjectives. We found that verbs are better because it will lead to more words very quickly for you mentally. And what we're trying with word selection is to explain it in such a visual way that everybody gets it very quickly. Now, that eliminates my prior aggressiveness. When you find the right words, you don't have to have an aggressive demeanor. You don't have to be a tough guy or a tough woman in a courtroom. The words are tough for you. And so that's really important, the word selection. Now, how do we emphasize those words that we've selected? The technique is called a loop. We put a word into a sentence, and then we're going to continue to use that same word, looping it, and making sure that everybody gets that phrase. So instead of saying the cars bumped into each other, bumped would not be a very good word if you wanted money for injury. The cars collided, the cars smashed, there was a crash. And you mentally go through a thesaurus of words that are similar in meaning but have a different impact visually. And so we're looking for those words. And if we pick crash, for instance, the cars crashed together, yes. After the crash, the man was lying in the road bleeding. And after the crash, the ambulance came. We want everybody on the same page with crash. And that, that's a simple form of a loop. And really just concentrating on word selection. It all goes back to word selection. Okay. So we've already defined this a little bit, but we want to talk more about chapters. When lawyers think in terms of proving their case up in cross-examination by chapters, that requires them to think in more detail, all right? You're not going to cross-examine just on the man and woman had an argument and say, okay, I proved they were arguing. That's not visual. That, that's not memorable. Judges and juries aren't going to get that. You get 12 people listening to that. They have 12 different ideas of what that argument looked like, what it sounded like. If you break the argument down into separate chapters with what he said, what she said, how he responded to it, what he did with his fist, what she did with the knife, and now you're going to be able to give a very visual of what happened. And most of what we do in a courtroom, if you think about it, is in the past tense. Very seldom is it live and in person. Now, there's moments where it is, but most of what we do, think about your typical domestic case, it is what happened and who did it and how they did it and an area I think is way overlooked. Why did they do it? What was their motivation? And people tell me all the time, well, motive isn't an element of 
the law. Yeah, but everybody wants to know about it. They want to know why you did it. And if you can get the opponent to admit to that, now you're so far advanced. So we want to teach the jury the judge in the form of chapters so they can visually say to themselves, mentally, when I say visual, it's the mental image. They will look up, and this happens all the time, and they'll say, oh, I see what you mean. They are literally saying, I see it in my head. And that's how we want to advocate. That's the way we want to teach. Because if we're doing it that way, they're going to be with us because they saw it. They realized what happened. So chapter is really, really important. Now, the preparation phase of chapters is how do you prepare your page, okay? I see lawyers, particularly in clinics, because it's so small, and I can look over everybody's shoulder, and I can see how they've written themselves notes. Normally, lawyers are not very organized with what they write down. And then they start reorganizing by drawing arrows. You know, I want the fourth question to be my second question. And they draw an arrow instead of just rewriting the darn thing. And by the time you get to court, it's a jumble of notes. And no, no kidding, we have a hard time figuring out what it was. I mean, I literally have been in court, looked down at the page and thought, who in the hell wrote this? I, I, don't, I can't even and read my own writing. I, I, what's this arrow mean? So we're going to be more organized with the way we actually prepare our pages. With screens, I think it's even more important. With Zoom, even more, more important because it's so concentrated, you have to really, really be organized before you start. Page preparation is what we call it, but organizing your questions so that you can incorporate new things as it happens is going to be increasingly important with Zoom. What I'm seeing with Zoom now is people are having a harder time being spontaneous. They have their script, they read the script, the witness gives the answers, and they're not listening. Uh, and they're not looking for opportunities to be more spontaneous or in the moment, in real time. Another technique, uh, this is number eight, if anybody's keeping track. Thank you. Well, my personality is if you ask for 10, you're getting 10. You know, (laughs) I'm very task oriented. So trilogies becomes very important, not only in cross-examination, but in opening statement and in closing argument and even in directs. Although I'll tell you, in directs, they almost never work. It's still aspirational to try to get it to work. In cross, you can completely control it. In openings and closings, you can completely control it. And that is, you're going to talk in terms of threes. And guess who was the best trilogy maker I've ever read, I've ever listened to? Winston Churchill. He used trilogies constantly. Look at his speeches. Look at his writings. It's just one after the other after the other, and it becomes very, very comfortable to talk that way. One of the classics one is, I came, I saw, I conquered. You know, uh, that, that's just a little snapshot of a, of a trilogy. They can be in many, many forms, 
but it makes you sound more eloquent when you're not. It's studied. It's constructed. It's not eloquence. You build it. But I learned from reading so much at Churchill, he built them. The speeches he gave before Parliament that had one trilogy after another, all prepared ahead of time. Very, very seldom was it off the cuff. And so I really love trilogies to finish a cross, to finish a chapter in cross, and to finish a closing argument. They make very simple propositions very memorable. And you're not sure why that sounds so good. As a listener, you just remember it. I've never had anybody come up to me and say, hey, that was a great trilogy. You know, no one ever says it. But they remember the concept that the trilogy imparted. And so that's why it's so important. And I think, again, in the world of Zoom, it'll become more important because our words are going to carry more significance because we don't have a live audience and we're not using our entire body. So the words have to carry us further than ever. Um, now, my final two, and, and this is what all this runs up to. You want to be a better cross-examiner, a better advocate, better lawyer? Listen. Stop talking. Start listening. If you listen, you hear that nugget that you wouldn't have heard otherwise. So many of us on cross getting ready to ask the next question and not listening to the answer. You saw it constantly in the clinics, particularly on the second day. You could hear it. I could hear it. But the lawyer doing the cross missed the opportunity to utilize an offered expression by the witness. And so instead of fearing anything after a yes or no is going to get me in trouble, you look forward to it and hope they volunteer something because you're going to tie it back. You're going to tie it back to your narrative, which brings me to number 10, and that is spontaneous loops. If I had one technique, and that's all I was allowed to have, one, I'd pick spontaneous loops. That's a loop, but you didn't bring up the word selection. The witness did. So we're listening to the witness. And a lot of times what happens is they'll say, yes, but let me tell you, and they're going to give a short explanation or maybe a long explanation. You're going to hear a word that fits your narrative. They don't mean to give it to you, but they're going to give you a word or a phrase, and you're going to listen. You're then going to tie it to your narrative, and now they don't want to talk anymore because they just realized if I keep talking, I'm getting myself in trouble, right? Or their lawyer is going to tell them, quit volunteering information. And that's all good for us because we're all prepared on our questions. We can do that, but we're listening for that opportunity. And the opportunity is what we call spontaneous loops. So that's, that's the 10. They certainly overlap, but all of advocacy does. What you learn on cross, you can apply to closing argument. What you learn in cross, you can apply to your opening statement. Thank you for condensing it and giving us such a comprehensive and 
concise range of tips <laughs> and uh, they're things that I try and use every time I'm cross-examining so I'm sure lots and lots of people will take a lot from what you've just shared with us well and you're very very good at spontaneous loops you have a good ear you do <laughs> thank you very much now when it comes to witnesses and they're difficult what advice can you give us about controlling them and I think you'd mentioned before you know a crying witness when a witness cries sometimes some of us don't know what to say or offer tissues and apologize if you're English that is I don't know right <laughs> if that's the universal thing um but do you have no it's universal <laughs> okay great um yeah. do you have any tips for controlling witnesses during cross-examination yeah actually in the first book that we wrote it's in its third edition now so it's evolved some we developed more than 20 ways to, to control. Some are very, very simple and very effective, like repeating the question you asked. The woman threw the stone. Blah, 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 blah. They don't want to answer that because they know that's bad. You don't move. You don't blink. You don't shuffle your feet. Lean forward a little bit. The woman threw the stone. It's amazing how often. That'll get the answer. It'll be a yes or no. And almost always a yes, if that's what you want. Because they realize by repeating the exact question, they are starting to look stupid. And no one voluntarily looks stupid. Now, we all look stupid sometimes in our lives. But no one voluntarily does that to themselves. And so while that's a very, very simple way to control, it's a very, very effective way to control. Out of the 20, when I go to court, I probably will have a list of three to five techniques I want to use on a particular witness. I've thought about it ahead of time, which ones are going to work with this guy probably. And then I'm, I have a cheat sheet and I look down and if I see repeat, I may try repeat right off the bat. Lawyers make the mistake of thinking I'll control them on the important stuff. You got to control them on all this stuff. Otherwise, they never learn that there is going to be a consequence. And, and so my suggestion is you control early and you control often, right? Is a spontaneous loop. Now, we've already talked about that, listening. And when they volunteer something, using against them, by far, in my opinion, that is the best effective technique out of the book. Uh, use it in discoveries or depositions. You use it in non-jury trials, jury trials. People relate to that because they realize they just said it and now you're using it. And it's very, very effective to control because the witness realizes every time I volunteer, I get in trouble. So they stop volunteering. And that becomes even better because they're enforcing your control. You're not having to force the control. I can definitely see people using those types of control methods. And they're so simple, you know, just repeat the question, like really effective. I've been asking you for tip after tip in this interview. Do you have a top three that are the most important? What would they be? Yeah, anybody who's been listening probably already knows one of them is going to be you have to listen. Listening is more important than talking. When in doubt, listen harder. 
one of the things we incorporate in the clinic and you've, you've participated in is improv exercises. And our, our professional actors have their own workshop now for lawyers to teach them how to listen better. And there is degrees of it. Uh, sometimes we listen very acutely. Sometimes we're kind of half in, half out. And you can build that skill. And so for me, that was a huge turning point in my career when I realized listening was more important than talking. That changed the way I crossed in a major way. And it made me less aggressive looking. And it made me much more gentle with witnesses because I didn't mind if they were talking. Because if they're talking, I'm listening. I'm going to win that. I'm going to win that point. It's just a question of when. And that's what I say to myself all the time now. Be patient with yourself. Listen. You'll win. It just may be taking longer than you want it to take. The second thing, and we've talked about this as well, is focusing on each chapter and what is the purpose of that chapter. Why are you asking those questions? Why does that matter? When we go through this introspection of why does it matter, why am I talking, you talk less, you use less chapters, but they're more pointed. And so particularly for less experienced lawyers who think talking is the way to win, I suggest to you that having a purpose for each chapter is the way you win. And finally, Constructive Cross has revolutionized my career again. I can look back and see four or five turning points in my career where, wow, that was a major shift in what you're doing. And Constructive Cross is one of those turning points. Before you go, Roger, where can people contact you online? Okay, it's really, really simple. And you can tell from my email address that I really didn't believe emails were ever going to catch on. It's Dodlaw, D-O-D-D-L-A-W, at Dodlaw.com. I know, it's redundant. I get it. But I really didn't think it was going to catch on. So I scribbled it down when somebody asked me to do it. And now, you know, decades later, I'm stuck with the same email. It's Dodlaw.com where people go to check out the trial clinics as well? No, that one, that one's called dodlawclinic.com. <laughs> I see there's a theme. <laughs> <laughs> there is a theme. <laughs> I, I keep thinking you got to make things simple. You know, why should anybody remember anything? And the answer is only if it's important. So I keep it simple so you don't get bogged down in that. Fantastic. And we'll have links for the book, Cross-Examination, Science and Techniques as well on our website, theadvocacypodcast.com. Great. So that's the end of the interview. Thank you so much for giving us your time and sharing your wisdom, Roger. It really has been amazing. Great. Good. You did a great job. Thank you for listening to The Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources. Until next time.